0: Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers. Thank you for tuning in tonight. If you're joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, you can visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com, as well as visit any one of our five social media platforms where this show streams to, which includes YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter want to welcome all of our moderators. Thank you for being here tonight. And, of course, all of you, all of our viewers. Uh, appreciate you being here. Hope you could spend the next hour here with us. I uh, want to welcome uh, gear who is with us on Instagram. Slevantia, sorry, I know, I butchered that. Uh, AZGamer is joining us on Instagram as well. marcio 95 is also with us. On the other side, let's see, we have Lisa on Facebook. Colette is also with us on Facebook. Cece Weezy is with us on YouTube. Then, of course, our moderator, Saz, Singer Chick, as well as Khaleesi are also with us. I hope everyone's enjoying their Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, depending on where you are. Hope it's been a good day for you. Uh, Douse is with us on Facebook. From uh, Minnesota, chilly Minnesota, that chilly upper northwest, Midwest. Uh, Thank you for being with us, Douse, from Facebook. It's good to have you with us. Uh, You know, I hope you guys got to see our interview yesterday with Sean Roberts from the last three Resident Evil films. It was a great chat. Uh, It really was fun, laid back, relaxed. He's a great person, easy to talk to. Had a lot of fun stories to share in regards to Resident Evil and a lot of the other stuff he's done. I hope you guys got to watch that. If, you're interested, if you missed it and you're interested in re-watching it, that along with all of our other episodes, including our interviews, are available throughout our social streaming uh, network on five different platforms. Probably the easiest one to use and find them would be YouTube. Uh, because YouTube is exclusively made for videos. And just, you know, talking about YouTube, I gotta share this with you. Uh, for those of you that have been following us for a while, you know that during last summer, at some point, I posted the Walking Dead webisodes. You know, those two-minute little clips that we got to see, uh during commercials of Fear the Walking Dead and The Walking Dead. What I did, though, is I combined them all together and I posted them for people to watch on YouTube. This was a while ago. This was, you know, well over six months ago now. Uh, You know, it gained medium traction. But for some reason, over the last week, viewership, For those webisodes, which include Flight 462, uh, Red Machete, of course, from The Walking Dead, has just exploded. And I'm just watching. uh, I just noticed all of a sudden my YouTube numbers started going up dramatically overnight. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And, you know... YouTube has some great analytics and it tells you exactly which videos are getting viewed the most, especially over the previous 48 hours. And lo and behold, it's these webisodes. Uh, And they've been up for six months, so I'm there like scratching my head. I mean, it's not hard to figure out. Somebody finds it, shares it, they share it. Before you know it, the thing has gotten like... 50-plus thousand views I think in the last week and uh, I think it's funny. It's not like it was just posted. It's been there for a while. It just goes to show you that uh, It takes time. It takes time uh, For any aspiring youtubers out there for your stuff to get recognized and a little bit of luck uh, But you definitely got to be patient. You know if it does get uh, if it's good content And it does get picked up, and it starts getting shared, you will see those numbers dramatically rise. For me, personally, I don't really, I don't want to say care, but I don't pay that much interest into the numbers. Uh, Because getting a large viewership on one video, for me, in regards to this show, it's just putting out a good product. I'm not getting paid. Uh, I just come out here to talk to you guys. Uh, As long as the end of the show, I don't don't judge a good show based on how many people tuned in. I judge a good show based on when the show is over with, if I felt like I put out a good product out there. So that's how I do it. If you get really caught up in the numbers, you're just going to drive yourself nuts. And probably end up making a lot of mistakes. You're going to get impatient. Uh, You're going to start pushing the envelope. And instead of the numbers going the way you want them to go, they're going to start going the opposite direction. So just a little side note for any aspiring YouTubers, streamers out there. Just keep that in mind. Um, Colette says, I've been watching Damien with Scott Wilson in it. Oh, good old Scott Wilson, Herschel. Uh, Khaleesi writes, you always do, Viz. Love it here. Thank you, uh, Khaleesi. Uh, Douse writes, I just finished Clarice after you mentioned it the other night. Love this show, so thank you. It was great to see Abraham. It's an amazing show. And Tuesday, we're going to have Marnie Carpenter, who plays uh, Catherine on Clarice and I'm so stoked to talk to Marnie and get the inside scoop on Clarice Uh, we're gonna have a lot more people from Clarice but for right now Marnie is the one that's confirmed she is going to be with us uh, Tuesday Tuesday night at our regular time of 9 30 p.m eastern and uh you know she plays Catherine Martin the same Catherine Martin who was in Silence of the Lambs that uh, Clarice rescued from Buffalo Bill. Uh, I think it's amazing that they've transferred, that they've brought her character over into the new TV show. And they didn't just forget about her. Or Ruth Martin, who's now played brilliantly by Jane Atkinson, who's also been on The Walking Dead and every other show you can imagine. Uh, Jane Atkinson, I love Jane Atkinson. I'm a big Jane Atkinson fan. Uh, I've I've joked about this, but uh, almost every role that we watched Jane Atkinson in, and for those of you who don't know, in The Walking Dead, Jane Atkinson played Georgie for, you know, that one or two episodes that she was actually on. And uh, besides The Walking Dead, almost every other role that Jane Atkinson has done, she's played some kind of government official, whether it's been on Criminal Minds, Madam Secretary, House of Cards... And for any House of Cards fans out there, uh, if you know, if you watched the last season, uh, she was taken out, uh, she was taken out Corleone style, taking care of family business. I don't know how many Godfather fans we have here, but if you remember the end of the first Godfather movie, when uh, Michael confronts his uh, brother in law, Cause he figured out he's the one that betrayed him, and uh, he tells him today I took care of all family business. And we all remember the scenes, you guys had to have watched The Godfather. You know, it's that mass slaughter while Michael is baptizing Connie's daughter, his sister's daughter, his niece. Uh, is it was it a girl or a boy? I think it. I'm, I'm drawing a blank if Connie had a girl or a boy. I know it's irrelevant. But anyway, when he's becoming godfather, he ordered his people to massacre all the family's enemies. And we see it play out. And in House of Cards, Claire Underwood, played by Robin Wright, takes care of family business. She is the president of the United States. And we see her, in true Corleone style, take out all her enemies. And one of those includes Jane Atkinson's character. Uh, she has gone into hiding because they all know how dangerous Claire Underwood is. I love House of Cards. I really do. I know there was a whole bunch of the controversy surrounding Kevin Kevin Spacey, which really sucked. Uh, I You know, I've I think Kevin Spacey is a brilliant actor. And all I don't know if you guys even know about the controversy that made them drop him from the last season of the show. Uh, and he's basically become a pariah in Hollywood. But his personal stuff aside, Kevin Spacey is a brilliant actor. And he played the role for so many seasons of Francis Underwood on House of Cards brilliantly if you guys have not watched house of cards uh i don't know if it's your thing or not but i would check it out and i think you're gonna get hooked pretty quickly so anyway welcome to the beard who's just joined us on instagram myra has also joined us christopher has joined us on youtube welcome christopher good evening to you sir uh cc writes connie corleone had two sons okay thank you cc i know i could always rely on you to get me the right scoop so uh connie had two sons and it was the first her firstborn that she asked her brother michael corleone played by al pacino to be the godfather to. you know christopher says thank you great channel thank you christopher uh, Thank you for uh stepping up and talking. I always love to talk to our viewership. I know there are a lot of people that watch this show that don't step up and talk, and that's totally cool. I totally respect that. I'd love to get to meet you guys, say hello maybe once. Annie is with us on Facebook as well. Welcome to Annie. It's good to see uh, a lot of new people stepping up and uh chatting. Like I said, I want to get to meet and talk to all of you. So anyway, let's get to some news. Uh, yeah, I already told you guys, Marnie Carpenter is going to be with us on Tuesday. Don't forget, the day before, Monday, March 8th, we have Dave Davis, star of the new movie, which is, a, I made it a must-watch recommendation, The Vigil. Uh, he's going to be our guest on Monday, and he also appeared in season three of The Walking Dead. Before Merle, he was one of the governor's henchmen, and Merle took him out, you know? He fell into the hands of Merle, and Merle killed him. So he's going to be our guest on uh, Monday. Welcome to Mona on Facebook. Gary Thirtle, uh is also uh, saying hello. Hey, Gary. Gary says he loves the show. I love this. You guys are stepping up and saying hello. Uh, I, I love talking to you guys. Thank you so much for saying hello and letting me, uh, you know, at least get to say hello to you and thank you for watching the show. So let's get on to the news. Let's get on to the news. We'll be talking to more people as they come in. Uh, The Walking Dead Norman Reedus discusses how Daryl will choose between Maggie and Negan. You would think it would be a no-brainer, right? Maggie. But uh, even though he will not admit it, I think Daryl, with each passing moment, is gaining new respect for Negan. I really, really think he is. So, The Walking Dead's Norman Reedus has opened up about his character. Daryl Dixon may be forced to choose between old friend Maggie Ree and adversary-turned-ally Negan. The actor also revealed who the crossbow-wielding survivor would pick if such a situation were to arise in the extended season 10 episodes, the first of which saw Maggie come face-to-face with Negan, the man who killed her husband, after six years away from the group. Maggie and Daryl definitely share something, and that was Glenn. Reedus told Entertainment Weekly, recalling how Daryl's outburst at Negan in season 7 opener prompted the latter to take his anger out on Glenn instead. So we all know that if it wasn't for Daryl's little outburst and taking a swing at Negan, Negan was not planning on killing two people that night. But he said if anybody stepped out of line, he would do it, and he had to keep his word, and he did it. Uh, Daryl really took it hard, as did Maggie, but he took it upon himself that it was his fault that it happened. He took that with him into the whole next season with the torture and all of that stuff. They had conversations, Maggie and Daryl, about forgiveness and it's not your fault and all these things. I think it gave them a closer bond. Having Maggie come back, it's a reminder of better times and of the people that we've lost. How uh, Home Sweet Home, the latest installment of the post-apocalyptic horror series, saw Maggie resolve to move back to Alexandria with her and Glenn's young son, Herschel. They did a great job casting young Herschel, having discovered that her former home, Hilltop, had been destroyed during the war with the Whisperers. But with Negan currently a resident there, how long is the peace realistically expected to last? During the interview, Reedus went on to say that if there is ever a time where the gang have to decide whether it's Negan or Maggie... It's Maggie for sure. And that Negan's track record of doing good things to largely benefit himself would play a factor in the decision. With Negan, yeah, we saw him do some friendly things, but is he faking? Is he trying to win us over? I don't think so. So because he wants to survive, I don't think there is a moment where we fully believe him one way or the other, he said. We saw Daryl... Uh, sorry, we saw Negan save Daryl and not shoot him with a shotgun. Then we saw Daryl save Negan by killing Beta for him. I don't really see that scene that way. I see the both of them teaming up, taking out Beta. I don't think Beta... Uh, You know, yeah, if it would have continued one-on-one between Beta and Negan, Beta would have probably won. Uh, But at the moment that Daryl swooped in and stabbed Beta, I don't think Beta had the upper hand and was ready to kill either one of them. That's how I saw that scene play out. We saw these things happen, but we don't have a friendship bracelet with Negan right now. So I don't know. I don't know what you guys thought of that scene. I did not really see it the way they saw it. Singer Chick writes, it looks so much like Glenn sitting there in that tree with his little hat on, just like Dad. And you can tell by the look on Daryl's face when he saw Herschel. He hadn't seen him in so many years. You can just tell by the look on his face. He was instantly reminded of Glenn because, you know, Herschel... And the casting they did for Herschel. He very much looks like he could be Stephen Yen's son. Uh, CC writes, I think Negan did want to kill two people that night. That's why he, uh, the antagonist Rosita, to provoke someone to step out of line. He is very cunning and smart. Could be. He was testing them. He was testing them to see if they would fall in line. Daryl failed. And because Daryl failed, he punished Daryl by killing Glenn. That's how sadistic Negan was back then. Uh, Khaleesi writes, you got all teary-eyed. Colette writes, I don't think Daryl will ever trust Negan. Yeah, You know, that's the thing about this world. You know, back during All Out War in Season 7, we never would have assumed that Daryl and Negan would be in the same space together, without one of them killing the other. But look where we are now. Time has a way of changing things. Uh, I don't think Negan is doing this as a ploy. When he tells uh, uh, Carol in that scene that we saw when she's about to let him out of jail, that he is just not cool with harm coming to anybody in Alexandria, I really believe him. I really believe that he's grown to care for the people of Alexandria. And even in this latest episode that we saw, literally a second before Maggie and him come face-to-face, as that wagon drives off, he tells them, you know, be safe. He cares about them. I really think he does care about them. Uh, Welcome to Ajith from India. Fan from India, welcome. Good to have you with us. So, let's see what else we got for you. Um, uh, I thought this would be interesting. The Walking Dead reveals the backstory of its badass slasher. AMC's The Walking Dead has finally revealed the backstory of Maggie Slasher, ally, who we've been calling the mass ninja person. Uh, and it's one of the show's most tragic. Uh, Let's see, at the uh, end of last season of The Walking Dead, when Maggie arrived to help out with the Whisperers, she brought back up. She brought backup, uh, of her ranks, the badass sing- Sickle-wielding Slasher stood out the most, rocking a hockey mask and moving with ninja-like speed and reflexes. Now with Season 10 bonus episodes unraveling, Fans are seeing just how this soldier, Elijah, is being positioned and it's similar to how Glenn was with Rick, a young but trusted ally and interestingly enough, in Home Sweet Home, the show provides an origin story for Elijah and it's heartbreaking, it's a heartbreaking one that resonates with one character, Ah, the loss of his sister is what he's talking about. And, you know, when you guys were watching that episode on Sunday uh, and and he took off his mask, you know, the actor who's playing Elijah is very young. And we've. I'm not going to get into the whole timeline again of The Walking Dead. Depending on who you talk to, it's 10 years. For me, according to my references, it's well beyond 10 years. But Elijah must have been, like, The Age of Carl, when the apocalypse happened. And it begs the question, who taught him all those badass moves? That would be interesting to find out, because he he has some moves. The dude is acrobatic, to say the least. So, anyway. Ten cosmic horror movies you probably haven't seen, but should. Alright, cosmic horror originates with the works of H.P. Lovecraft... A seminal 20th century horror writer with a complex legacy. And sadly enough, I've mentioned this also prior, Lovecraft did not really become known till well after his death. It'd be great if all these people, artists, you know, going back to the Renaissance artists, that they would have gotten some attention while they were alive but instead, they became uber-famous after they died. While Lovecraft has been rightfully called out for his problematic history, the overarching themes that arise from his writings have forever altered the nature of history, of horror, especially horror movies. Lovecraftian horror movies that dive into cosmic ideas Reconcile with humanity's ultimate sacrifice, sorry, humanity's ultimate insignificance in the larger intergalactic scheme. Through the tales of the occult gatherings, alien contact, and psychological unraveling, cosmic horror movies explore the deep-seated fears people possess when it comes to the unknown. Unfortunately, some of those Lovecraftian cinematic nightmares have fallen under the radar. Want to welcome Foz, who's also just joined us on YouTube. Uh, Welcome. So, number 10 on the list, and I've mentioned this before this movie, uh, Prince of Darkness. I would easily put this as one of my top 10 favorite horror movies. And you're right. I bet you a lot of you have not watched this movie. It's a John Carpenter film. Uh, I love it. I mean, I can't say enough good things about this movie. And I'm really glad they have not tried to reboot this. Because I guarantee you they would screw it up. I just guarantee you they would screw it up. One of John Carpenter's most obscure films, Prince of Darkness is the second installment in his apocalyptic Apocalypse Trilogy preceded by 1982's The Thing and followed by 1995's In the Mouth of Madness. I have never seen Prince of Darkness, The Thing, or In the Mouth of Madness in any way be collected, you know, uh, related in some kind of apocalyptic storyline that John Carpenter was trying to lay out. To me, they are just three separate good movies. Uh, I have never even thought of the idea of them being related whatsoever. Uh, It tells a story of a group of quantum physicists researching a mysterious cylinder containing a swirling... Green liquid embodying cosmic evil. Carpenter acknowledges all three of the films in the Apocalypse trilogy are inspired by Lovecraft. Prince of Darkness, which stars Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong, is full of nightmare sequences, religious iconography, uh, and scientific inquiries, making it the consummate cosmic horror film. Uh, I didn't have, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, whether they're wrong or right, I, I'm not saying they're wrong or right. Prince of Darkness, I have never equated it to a cosmic horror film. Uh, it's just very much in good versus evil that gr- green swirling liquid in that cylinder is basically the embodiment of the devil. And Satan trying to come into our world uh, at the end of the 20th century. It's a great film. And it's such a great story. Such a great cast. Alice Cooper makes a cameo appearance in it. Uh, Of course, Donald uh, Pleasance, just the way he talks, can make any movie spooky as shit. So, if you have not watched it, please watch Uh, prince of darkness number nine the xx the man with x-ray eyes 1963 the man with x-ray eyes is a cautionary tale about one scientist who takes his studies too far ray millen stars in the film as dr james xavier who invents eye drops designed to expand humanity's range of vision giving people visual access to ultraviolet lights and x-ray wavelengths now we have machines that do that but back in the, in the 1960s they did not exist number eight from beyond 1986 it's like a reanimator Stuart gordon's lesser known from beyond is a loose adaptation of the lovecraft short story of the same name it also stars reanimator uh jeffrey combs and barbara crampton who was a guest of ours as well as Ted Sorel, who plays the mad scientist responsible for the film's unfolding mayhem. Number 7. Europa Report 2013 Made on a shockingly small budget, the deep space sci-fi film Europa Report combines found footage tropes with cosmic horror themes to present audiences with a tale of horror or terror. The film allows a crew of astronauts uh, follows a crew of astronauts as they set off on a privately funded mission to the titular moon, one of the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. Number six, the arrival. Charlie Sheen's 1990 alien contact film is actually pretty good. Not only does the arrival include a great reimagining of the genre, but it's full of the kind of paranoia, intrigue, and suspense lack from so many recent alien invasion films. Number five, Solaris. Solaris is a distressing, claustrophobic rumination of space exploration from one of Russia's best directors, Andrei Tarkovsky. The three scientists on board a space station orbiting a fictional planet, called Solaris, begin to experience hallucinations and their mental health quickly deteriorates. How many people here think that Event Horizon is on this list? Number four, Pandorum, 2009. Although it was derailed by critics upon its release and bombed at the box office, Pandorum has since gained a cult following for its original premise and stellar acting from Ben Foster. Foster stars alongside Dennis Quaid as two members of a deep space flight crew who wake up with no idea who they are, how much time has transpired, or what they're supposed to do. Number three, It, the Terror from Beyond Space, 1958. An inspiration for Dan O'Bannon when he penned the script for Alien, uh, It, the Terror from Beyond Space, is a classic black-and-white sci-fi romp fueled by Cold War fears. While conducting Earth's second mission to Mars in 1973, members of a nuclear-powered spacecraft sc- sorry, spacecraft hope to discover the fate of the ship that preceded them, the Challenge 141 and its crew. Number two, Screamers. Dan O'Bannons actually wrote the screenplay for Screamers, which is technically based on Philip K. Dick's short story called Second Variety, another film that did poorly when it was released. Many fans of Screamers believe it was ahead of its time and deserves a re-evaluation. And number one, Event Horizon wasn't on this list, Resolution. Uh, we got to talk about this movie for a little bit. An earlier effort uh, from indie sci-fi mavericks Justin Benson and Aaron Scott, Moorhead, Resolution is a brilliant film about friendship, drug addiction, and bizarre creatures lurking in the darkness. When Michael's best friend Chris, an addict, refuses to go to rehab, Michael decides to confine Chris in his remote cabin while he detoxes. This questionable move forms the film's early tension, but it gets even more peculiar when they re- when they start to realize the local UFO cult may be right about alien entities. Resolution exists in the same universe as Benson and Moorhead's two- 2017 feature *The Endless*. Now. I don't know how to explain Resolution or The Endless. They are two movies in the same universe that actually, you can call them sequels very easily and you can't really argue against it. Uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. Yeah, he takes his friend to his cabin, but what happens is once they are there, they can't leave. And what happens is the events of uh, what is going on keep replaying over and over and over. There is no escape. Uh, So if you watch one movie, you got to watch the other. I'm surprised there have not been more movies made in this, uh, you know, I don't even know what to call it. Sequels, you know, anthology, whatever. But I am really surprised that more films have not yet been made. It does have a big cult following, uh, more than enough to justify another film. And to better... I just can't properly explain it. You gotta watch it. Uh, Resolution, 2012. And then there's The Endless, 2017. They both take place not only in the same universe, but in the same region. And it's a region that you are left to assume is controlled by aliens. You don't get to really see any aliens or spaceships or anything like that. But the way the environment is controlled is it's a time loop. And the events keep replaying over and over and over. And there's no escape. And they realize that they are in a time loop. And in one movie, you see uh, characters from the previous movies try to kill themselves. It doesn't work. You can't kill yourself. There literally is no escape. So they just they die, and then they come right back to relive the same events. So anyway... That's what that's about. I don't know if you guys are interested in that type of thing. But it's for me, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, Ruben is with us on Instagram. Giving us a thumbs up. Uh, Lid is also with us from Brazil. Welcome from Brazil. Love The Walking Dead. And is also waving at us. The Walking Dead has a huge fan following in Brazil. I mean, crazy huge. That's how big. The walking dead is in brazil so checking out the time let's see what we can do uh you know now nah, we can sort of skip this for now the 10 best taglines from 70 horror films uh we'll save that for another day 52 funny jokes that every horror movie fan will laugh at we don't have time to go through 52 of them uh, controversial horror film Silent Night Deadly Night getting reboot from Jeeper Creepers Reborn outfit. Uh, 10 best indie horror movies of the 2000s uh, ranked according to MDB. I just got to quickly go through this list. Number 10 is Ginger Snaps 2000. Never heard of it. Number 9 is Eden Lake. 2008 let's see number eight is Bubba Hotep I have heard of this haven't watched it 2002 number seven is Martyrs 2008 let's see number six The Descent very popular film Uh, I've mentioned this before for me it was neither great nor bad it was a good film didn't leave a lasting impression on me Number five is uh, Time Crimes, 2007. Let's see, number four, An American Crime, 2007 as well. Number three is Wreck. Wreck uh, was redone. Wreck is the Spanish version of the found footage film that was redone in English called Quarantine, starring Jennifer Carpenter, Jennifer Carpenter uh, played Emily Rose uh, in, the, in The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, you know Jennifer Carpenter if you'll see her. She was the star of Quarantine. Basically, it involves uh, Jennifer's character. Now, this is Quarantine, not Wreck, but they're identical stories. They, she is documenting for the night a uh, firehouse. They get called for a call into this building. They go there, the next thing you know, the building is being completely quarantined. People are being locked inside. You can tell that a whole bunch of government agencies are outside, keeping everybody in. There is a plague that they've identified inside the building that turns people into zombies. That's the best word used to describe them. Both movies, Wreck, Quarantine. They're both amazing. "Wreck" was, uh, if I'm correct on this, was the original Spanish version, and it was redone as "Quarantine." Uh, same, you know, identical themes, identical story, just different char- different actors and a different language. Number two on the list is "Shawn of the Dead." Absolutely. I mean, how can you not like Shaun of the Dead? Number one, Let the Right One In, 2008. The Swedish film Let the Right One In is far from mainstream vampire movie. In fact, it's actually a macabre love story between a bully 12-year-old boy, Oscar, and the child vampire, uh, Ellie, who moves into his apartment. So there you guys have it. All right, what else do we have? It appears everyone quit The Walking Dead at the same Negan moment. Is this another article about season 7, episode 1? Yesterday on Twitter, a number of Walking Dead characters started trending, so I tried to figure out what was going on. It was not an actual development with the show, it turns out, but instead a viral question that was asked by a user in short at what point did you give up on the walking dead 40000 retweets and 230000 likes later and a very very clear pattern started to emerge far and away the moment brought up the most often when was negan was when negan killed glenn beating him to death with a baseball bat In the most brutal fashion possible. Not a big surprise. This this echoes what I've heard for years informally. Some version of the show still on. I quit after Negan killed Glenn. 90% of the time. That's the scene that is cited. And it's true. Ratings went down after this. And never recovered. How many of you guys think that if The Walking Dead can redo it, they would have completely done it differently and still maintain the storyline? I mean, yeah. I mean, killing one of the other characters would have sucked that night as they were all on their knees in front of Negan and we get to meet Negan for the first time. Uh, Khaleesi writes, they they would do it over. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, it's it's a money game. You don't want to lose viewership. Uh, I think they realized it was a mistake. Even though as far as shock factor goes, it was way high up on the scale, but they paid a price. They lost a lot of viewers. A lot of viewers because of uh, taking out not only Glenn, but Abraham as well. Two very loved characters all in one episode. But we have talked at We have talked about this topic to death. Uh, Singer Chick writes, oh, I think they learned their lesson that time. Colette also writes, it's a horrible scene. It is, uh, you know, but it's done. Can't take it back. So, final thing that we have, uh, Young Frankenstein and nine other great horror spoofs. Number 10, Young Frankenstein. I think this is hysterical. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this Mel Brooks film with Gene Wilder, but it's hysterical. Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, 2010. Night of the Creeps. Uh, This is a classic. 1986. Number 7, The Cabin in the Woods. Another cult classic. 2011. Uh... And there, if you don't notice, that's Thor right there. You know, before he became Thor. Uh, Number six, This is the End, 2013. Number five, The Evil Dead 2, 1987. Number four, What We Do in the Shadows, 2014. Is that Robert Downey Jr.? That looks like Robert Downey Jr. Number three, uh, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. 1975 number two is scream 1996 and number one sean of the dead that's two lists today that we have gone through that sean of the dead is uh either number one or very close to number one uh colette writes love gene wilder it was hilarious Uh, i mean uh, young frankenstein Mel Brooks has done some really funny movies. Probably my favorite is Young Frankenstein. And then I don't know how many of you saw History of the World Part One. Two Mel Brooks movies. They're both hysterical. Uh, you know, that's just the kind of movies that Mel Brooks makes. You know, he also made Spaceballs as well. Uh, Saz writes Mel Brooks is awesome. He is, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Farhan has also just joined us on Instagram Uh, Marie wants to know if I've seen all these movies no, no, I have not seen all these movies on the list I've seen a few of them a lot of them, but definitely not all of them so in the remaining time that we have we are going to be talking about social commentary in horror And why horror is really used as the medium to uh, portray or talk about, so you know, make social commentaries. What I mean by social commentaries, it means issues that we are facing at whatever particular moment the film is made in. And it's addressed in one way or another in a film. A good example is Night of the Living Dead. It's the example that keeps getting used over and over again. It was made in the 60s, and A, they put a black man in the lead of the movie, along with a white woman. The black man was the main protagonist. He was the hero. And at the end of the movie, after surviving and being the lone survivor of a night of hell, all to get shot down by a bunch of hillbillies if that's not social commentary i don't know what is and in every one of george romero's movies he has always made some connection to the events that were going on whatever time a movie was being made uh there's not a lot of video out there and of course i don't have enough time to put a video together There is this one long video, we're sort of going to scan through it, that explains some of the social issues and some of the movies and how horror has changed uh, and implemented a lot of social issues slash social commentaries into those movies. So we don't, it's a 25 minute minute long video. We're not going to, obviously we don't have enough time to watch it all. We're just gonna skim through most of it and just see what we can figure out. So let's go ahead and watch it. Times change, audiences change. The creature, the monster, the villain, I think is allowed to evolve.
1: The social thriller film is in and it's reinventing the horror genre as we know it. Now you're in the sunken place. In 2017, Jordan Peele's smash hit Get Out not only generated an endless stream of think pieces and dialogue about enduring racism in our nation
0: White family? Black servants?
1: It also ignited a cinematic craze of socially-minded horror films, which have even come to be seen as a genre of their own.
0: I call it a social thriller.
1: The trademark of the social thriller is that it devises its scares around hot-button, politically-charged issues that make us uneasy.
0: Every year these liberal elites, you know, the globalist cucks who run the deep state, kidnap a bunch of normal folks like us
1: and hunt us for f***ing sport. Horror movies have always found new ways to crawl under our skin routinely reinventing themselves to maintain a grip on viewers. Maybe it's some kind of evil being that can read our minds and take the shape of stuff we're afraid of. So what exactly scares us? You may look to common phobias like spiders, clowns, and ghosts.
0: What are you afraid of, a little blind?
1: But according to research, these menaces hold a rather low stake in our minds. Our true greatest fear is humanity and its capacity for evil.
0: There is evil in this world. There's dark. It's true. awful
1: things. And likewise, man-made perils like war, terrorism, or simply society itself can give rise to terrifying cinema and TV. There are far worse things waiting man than death. If we look closer, horror films have always been full of social insight, inherently loaded with the subtext of our shared traumas, fears, and unrest. This
0: is no dream, this is really happening!
1: So what exactly is the social thriller, and how does it provoke our collective anxieties in a new way? Here's our take on modern social horror, and how it follows from the evolution of the horror genre through the ages. What are you people?
0: We're Americans.
1: You're watching The Take. Thanks for watching and be sure to share and subscribe. This video is brought to you by Movie, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. It's like your own personal film festival. Sponsorship streaming social thrillers are crafted to time. remind us that the true terrors are waiting for us once we leave the dark cinema and re enter civilization. She wasn't a reflection, she was. Real." While the term social thriller has popped up in individual film reviews and criticism since at least the 1970s, it wasn't generally used to connote a distinct, cohesive genre. Then, in 2017, Jordan Peele coined this label in its modern incarnation, defining the social thriller as, quote, "...thriller-slash-horror-movies where the ultimate villain is society." There's something wrong with the world, is not there, Maya? There is something wrong, Selena. As Peel has put it, it's about the notion that to find the scariest monster, we need to look no further than the human demon. I'm and when curious I talk as, about as to how many demon, of us think, I'm talking about like the evil we are capable of collectively. For are get there out, Peel found that inspiration w- that think that, in a variety you know of precursors that to the modern social idea. thriller, like 1968's Rosemary's Baby, which tackles issues of female disempowerment and control over their bodies.
0: I didn't want to miss baby night, you, and a couple well, of my I nails were out. ragged. And-
1: After protagonist Rosemary is raped by Satan himself, her pregnancy is medicated and managed by hostile, controlling men. Don't
0: read books. No pregnancy was ever exactly like the ones described in the books.
1: Rosemary's own body becomes an enemy, while all decisions about what to do with it are taken away from her. So the film dramatizes its time period's historic battle for women's rights, as well as male fears of female agency. Just be a
0: mother to your baby.
1: These themes of control over women and their bodies also play out in another movie based on an Ira Levin novel, 1975's uh, The Stepford Wives, set in a dystopian suburb where the women are suspiciously subservient to their husbands. I want to please him now. When it's revealed that the housewives are actually cyborgs programmed by the Men's uh, Association, this analogy for women being brainwashed by the patriarchy offers a concise feminist critique of old fashioned gender roles. I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. Other prominent social thrillers have focused on racial tensions. In 1968's Night of the Living Dead, released at the end of the Civil Rights Movement, African-American protagonist Ben is trapped in a house with unequipped white people who must reluctantly rely on him to survive. The Civil
0: Rights Movement we never ended. It is I'm still to. ongoing today. That's my But we personal have to try opinion. to avoid the house up together.
1: While director George Romero said his film wasn't consciously intended as a racial critique, critics have read Ben's preparedness to take on the zombies as a product of having faced the horrors of racism his entire life. Don't you
0: know what's going on out there?
1: This is no Sunday school picnic. In 1992's Candyman, the film's black boogeyman is the ghost of a former slave who was murdered for impregnating a white woman.
0: Father executed a terrible revenge. Poor Candyman.
1: We never learn his real name, nor are we asked to sympathize with him." So the film highlights America's ugly history of demonizing black men like that Candyman against Candyman the backdrop of urban redone. plight it's and the housing released, projects uh, he year. haunts. You know, so never come here except to cause us a problem. One quality that distinguishes a good social thriller is that it reveals multi-layered and complex feelings around political topics that so often get reduced to simple us-or-them party lines in public discourse. Get Out wouldn't be a very interesting movie if its message were simply that people are racist or racists are bad. Instead, the plot is looking more specifically at self-congratulatory liberal types who think of themselves as inclusive and progressive I would have
0: voted for Obama for a third term if I could.
1: but who, when it comes down to it, are determined to preserve the status quo that keeps them on top. The result is a cinematic experience that confronts us with how much more pervasive racism is than we generally like to think. I do not like the deer. I'm sick of it. They're taking over. They're like rats. See, that's and why the horror is and the it perfect makes medium uncomfortable because by forcing them to question what's their going own complicated, on in the real racial allegiances, it's sort of like a horror film. Except it's
0: our reality. The horror film,
1: genre's convention of symbolically evocative reality. monsters is especially effective at bringing out the full, messy, complicated spectrum of our are unease about social so questions that are in reality Caribbean anything but simple.
0: Kind of it's perfect
1: <laughs> Who knows? Since Peel popularized the social thriller, critics have eagerly applied the term to a wide range of new films that tackle complex problems like race, class, oppression, and sexuality or gender, as well as retroactively to past classics, a number of prominent films to be grouped in this category, like Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, and 2020 Oscar-winner Parasite merely have horrific elements, and the term has even been extended to examples far outside of the horror genre. When Peel curated his BAM film series, The Art of the Social Thriller, he also included Joe Dante's more comedic The Burbs, Hitchcock classic Rear Window, and even 1967 comedy-drama Guess Who's Coming to Dinner about an interracial couple meeting their soon-to-be-in-laws, because he views his own get-out as sort of a thriller take on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner dinner.
0: Mom and Dad, my my black boyfriend, will be coming up this weekend, and I just don't want you to be shocked."
1: Still, some have questioned the craze for applying the social thriller label to any vaguely horrific movie with something to say, or any horror movie that's especially good. Critics argue that the category, like the related elevated horror label that's been thrown around lately, plays into a long history of the horror genre being critically ignored and dismissed as not serious. As Emma Fraser wrote for Sci-Fi, social thriller is essentially a fancy way of talking about a specific kind of horror. But by dressing this genre up, it actually does it a disservice. Horror is much smarter than it is often given credit for. In fact, arguably many of the best horror films throughout history could qualify as social thrillers, as they so often symbolically express our shared cultural anxieties as literal monsters. In order to understand why this socially conscious breed of horror is thriving today, it's helpful to look back at the evolution of horror in cinema over the course of U.S. history.
0: Alright, we're not gonna do that because that's where it gets really long. But here's my quick take on horror and why I think it's probably the most popular genre out there. Horror is not just exclusively about blood, guts, and scare. It is so many, so many different things. I saw a movie the other day, a great movie on Amazon called *The Lie*. It's about a girl and her a fifteen year old girl and her friend. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but devise a a plan that ultimately leads to a family be unraveling, and that's a horror film. There was not a, there was basically no blood, no guts, no gore, no jump scares. But it definitely falls under the category of horror slash thriller. It encompasses so many different things that it's endless. And that is why I believe it is uh, as popular today as it's ever been. And its popularity is only growing. Uh, And it's a great medium for making movies that involve social commentary and deal with serious issues like racism and what not? look at american horror story uh several years ago with the whole cult that you know started murdering people just to gain power in government it just goes on and on and on anyway guys thank you so much for tuning in this hour has flown by as as always uh if you want more information about our show please visit our website at deadtalklive.com Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. If you're there right now, please hit the like button. Uh, We simultaneously stream to YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. You can find us on any of those five or all of those five streaming platforms. Just search for Dead Talk Live. I'll be back on the air again tomorrow night. It's been a treat as always. Please stay safe. And until tomorrow night, stay walking, guys. Good night.